We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. We turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, please. We're in verses 45 through 50, and this chapter is 66 verses, so we're not quite to the end just yet. Matthew 27, 45 to 50. Jesus had been crucified in our last episode, as it were. The title uh, or crime charges against him were leveled, and the sign that said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, uh, or this is Jesus, the King of the Jews, it says in the shortened version of it. The two robbers were crucified as well with him, or rebels. Uh, And then we looked at some length at the material regarding those who mocked the Lord. You recall the Passers-by, the chief priests, the scribes, even the criminals on the cross mocked the Lord. Now we come to the part of the passage that deals with his death on the cross. And let's read this in verses 45 through 50. It says, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour there was darkness over all the land. And at about the ninth hour... Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now, the events of this short section of the Bible span six hours of time, uh, more or less, slightly more, maybe slightly less, from 9 a.m. until 3 p.m. in the afternoon. The sequence of events is recorded. Let me just go through those quickly and then comment on each one as they come in turn. And the sequence of events is like this. First of all, the Bible says in verse 45, there was darkness over the land. Jesus had been hung upon the cross at about 9 a.m. How that, we believe, was implemented was that he was laid on the ground, his arms outstretched, nailed to the cross beam. Then that cross beam was lifted up and affixed to the upright, which may have had a little protrusion on it to help him the body of the person lift up and down to breathe. Uh, They would have then nailed his feet to the upright, and that would have accomplished the crucifixion. Uh, At about noon, so after three hours of this torture, the sun became darkened somehow. There was a divinely timed event that may have been somewhat natural or may have been somewhat miraculous. We don't know exactly. Some try to correlate with lunar uh, solar eclipses, rather, and things like that. But it doesn't tell us, it doesn't give us the specifics. All, it's, all that we need to know is that it was dark. Darkness is indicative 
of the gloom of judgment in this scenario. Sometimes in the Bible, darkness is just the absence of light, like if you shut off the light switches. There's no moral implication to that. Other times, darkness is a, an absence of revelation from God, and revelation is pictured as light. When God speaks, there's light. You know, the entrance of your word gives light. Uh, your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. So darkness is the kind of the opposite of revelation. Other times, darkness is a reference to sin. Uh, and that's not unrelated to what we're looking at here. But, you know, for example, you'll see a passage like that says in 1 John 1, 5 and 6 that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Not any at all darkness. That's a verse I had our Greek students translate on their test. And uh, we had some fun with that. There is a word at the end of that verse that uh, expresses that idea that there's no darkness at all. And that's kind of a tricky word and a, and a word to fit into the translation. So, But darkness can refer to those different kinds of things. But here I understand it to signify judgment. Think of Exodus chapter 10 in the judgments against Pharaoh when God caused darkness to come over the whole land of Egypt except for the place where the children of Israel were. Or Amos 5, 18 to 20, you, you know, woe to you who seek the day of the Lord. It's not a day of light, but a day of darkness because the day of the Lord is, is not only going to bring the kingdom, but it's going to bring judgment first. Uh, we see the same in Zephaniah and and Second uh, Peter has a reference to darkness, that the bad angels are cast into darkness. Even the Lord said, I'm just thinking now, that those who are outside of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a judgment kind of context. Jude 6 and 13 uh, has the same. And then the last reference to this that I found relative to judgment, is in Revelation 16.10, where it says, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. This is in the midst of the tribulation. And his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. So darkness is a picture of judgment. And I don't carry the comments much farther than that, except I think you can understand Jesus hanging on a cross God is judging the sin of the world in him. And so there is darkness. It's as if I sometimes kind of picture it like a, a funnel of the moral darkness of the universe being poured out and focused down on one spot on a cross on a hill called Golgotha. And right there is the tornado of God's judgment, and it's dark. It's dark. About 3 p.m., Jesus began to feel that. He didn't begin to feel it, but he really felt it. And he called out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, we could answer the question, I, I think, pretty accurately. We've answered, we, we know that he's forsaken, or he's feeling forsaken because God has laid on him the iniquities of us all. He has bruised him. It has pleased the Lord to put him to grief, to make his soul an offering for sin. And that's why, that's the answer to why, why he has forsaken. Now, um, did God ultimately forsake Christ? No. 
And even in the, the psalm, when, when um, David used that phrase, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus is picking that up as a, as a you know, he, Jesus is the righteous sufferer. David was a righteous sufferer during his time. So Jesus picks up that same language to describe a similar circumstance. And by the end of the psalm, David recognizes, no, God is still with me. But you know what? I don't want to downplay one little bit the idea that Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? As if it's a pretend forsaking or it's, you know, just uh, to fill space with words. Jesus was a completely human being and he had feelings, just like you have feelings. And sometimes you feel things that aren't quite true. You know what I mean? Although in this case, there's a lot of truth in it, but it's not that God had forsaken him fully and finally. It's that God had poured out the wrath of, uh, against sin and would take him back once the work was accomplished, burial was done, and the resurrection was completed. And so we know that he wasn't ultimately forsaken. But I'm going to say, however you deal with that, Jesus as a man felt that way at that time. He felt badly. He felt very deeply that this was a bad situation because it was a bad situation. Now, when Jesus said, my God, he said it in his language in Aramaic which, or in Hebrew, which would have been, in this case, Aramaic, I'm quite sure, but he said, Eli, Eli. That's E-L, El, Elohim, short for God. And the I suffix is the possessive, my God. So my God, Eli, in Eli, again, Lama is the word why, and then Sabachthani, that's a whole mouthful. Uh, it, doesn't, it can't even find it in the uh, Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, but uh, it, it's for, to be forsaken. And again, the I at the end, Sabachthani, why have you forsaken me? Okay, again, it's the me suffix or my suffix. So onlookers thought, well, he's calling for Elijah. Now, why they thought that is not 100% clear to me, except obviously E-L-I, E-L-I, E-L-I. I mean, the spelling is the start of Elijah is the same. But it was clearly the case in the sentence that he wasn't calling for Elijah. He was asking a question about his God forsaking him. In the Aramaic, it's clear, at least in the writing, of course, it, you know, there are a multitude of factors. I mean, here he is on the cross. There's noise. There's onlookers. There's passers-by. There could have been a distance away. There could have been muffled speech. Their hearing could have been impeded. There could have been noise in the background, the low volume, the distance. All kinds of features could have confused the hearers, and they might not have gotten the uh, full sense of it. They just heard that beginning, and they're like, oh, he's calling for Elijah. And Elijah is supposed to come before the great and coming of the terrible day of God and all of that, but that wasn't what Jesus was doing. I'm just still going through the kind of the sequence of events, and then we'll look at a few other things related to this. So when that happened, they probably could tell that Jesus was not speaking as clearly as he might if he were just perfectly fine standing on the ground. And he was probably parched beyond belief. And so somebody gets the smart idea to run and take a sponge 
and fill it with sour wine and stick it on a pole and stick it up there to Jesus' mouth to try to give him some moisture because it probably was just burning with dryness and hard to speak. And so he, he did receive that moisture into his mouth and throat. John 19.30 says that. Now, this is not the same as what we saw last time. Remember we saw last time they tried to give him a wine mixed with gall, myrrh or bitter or something, and that was to deaden the pain. He didn't take that because he didn't want to be in a stupor, as I said. Um, but this is a different, it's later on in the day, right almost at the end of his life, about six hours earlier, and this was moisture given to extend the life of the crucifixion victim or to make it more easy for him to say his last words. Perhaps the person doing this thought that Jesus would have more interesting things to say if he could speak easier, uh, you know, about Eli or whatever he was talking about, they thought. So then the others that were standing there said, oh, wait a minute, just let him alone. You know, they, I mean, they got, the, they got the, the, the moisture to him, but uh, they wanted to see if Elijah would come and save him. Now, obviously, that was not foreordained to happen. What did the Lord say himself about Elijah? He said that Elijah would come as a forerunner to the Savior. Elijah was not the Savior. He was the forerunner to the Savior, okay? So Elijah was not going to come. Listen to that again. Let, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and save him. Well, if Elijah came and saved him, then he wouldn't have saved you. Jesus died, as we said last time, in order to save you. And so nobody could save him. As sad as that is when you think about, you know, a righteous man suffering you know, you'd like a superhero to come in and rescue him off the cross and, and, you know, the good to prevail and all of that, but that wasn't how good was to prevail. So Elijah was no savior. Elijah is just the messenger of the savior, like John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ as well. Now then, finally, in this portion, Jesus cries out again with a loud voice and yields up his spirit. Mark and Luke say that he breathed his last here it says that he yielded up his spirit. So the timing of his death is tied to the timing of his last breathing. He gave up his spirit. The content, uh, let me, actually, let me just back up and pause for a second on that. You know, there's this kind of debate today about when life begins, when life ends. You remember, uh, I think it was Pete Buttigieg saying that, well, life begins when the baby draws its first, first breath. Well, he's about nine months too late. But he's talking about the breath of life and, you know, kind of making some twisted application of Scripture. At the other end, it's basically the case that when someone draws their last breath, they die. Okay, you might, as I have, attended at the death of someone and, you know, they're all hooked up with all these machines and you can see all the data, you know, the heart rate and the breathing and the whatever, whatever, and you know, you're like, well, when, when did the person actually pass away? Well, I mean, five minutes later, it doesn't matter. You know, their, their last breath, and then they were gone. So we don't have to get hung up on the, you know, the, the milliseconds of this situation. But 
The death of Christ is tied to his last breathing. He breathed his last, he exhaled, and his spirit left his body, and he was gone. Now, the content of what he said was not recorded by Mark or Matthew, Matthew rather, or Mark, but Luke does give us the words in Luke 23, 46. And so what I wanted to do was, given that, I thought, you know, Maybe what I would do is I would look at the last words of Jesus on the cross, and uh, it, it appears to me that we won't have maybe enough time, but I'll try to get through some of these anyway to show you what the whole sequence of events was from the perspective of the words of Jesus. Now, Jesus, he did say some words, and they're very important, but he did not answer the mockers, He did not answer the the Roman soldiers, those who were going by. They did not merit an answer. They did not deserve an answer, but he did give a precious few words that are important to us. And the first of those is actually before he went on the cross. It was on the way to the cross. And this isn't traditionally included in the seven words of Jesus on the cross, but it seems that we shouldn't omit it either. So listen to these words in Luke 23 just before going on to the cross. On the way there, Simon of Cyrene, probably alongside carrying his cross or cross beam with him. And Jesus said this, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, and he's talking to the daughters of Jerusalem. He's not talking to the sons of Jerusalem. So he's talking to the ladies that are there, these women who are seeing this horrid sight of men being taken to Golgotha to be crucified. And, and they know, many of them know Jesus and his, his reputation and how he healed and he was a righteous teacher and a rabbi and all of that. I mean, it's a terrible, terrible turnaround of events. And so Jesus addresses these daughters of Jerusalem as tender as they are in their, in their weeping and says, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, this is Jesus adding to those quotations now, for if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Now you may have read that before, as I have many times, and said, what exactly is the Lord talking about there? Well, there's... I think a lot of implications in terms of future events here, eschatology we call it. The Lord is speaking of the future. The language he uses is definitely applicable to the end times because in Revelation 6, you see during the tribulation where we were, uh, well, we were in 16 before, but in chapter 6 in the tribulation, the conditions are so bad that Men and even mighty men on the earth say to the mountains, cover us, to the rocks, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb who sits upon the throne. They know that God is pouring out his wrath on the earth. And so they use that language from Hosea chapter 10. It appears to be applicable also to the near future when, what does the text say in Luke? It says, when they, if they do these things in the green wood, then what will be done in the dry? Who is they? I think the Lord Jesus is saying, these guys, these ones who are doing this to me, the Romans will take just for a moment, 
they are doing this to me now, you know what they're going to do later? And I think that's the reference to the green and the dry. What's a green? When you cut a, cut a branch and it's green, what does that tell you? It's living, it's alive, maybe young, strong. You know, well, it's strong in a different way. Like, you know how the, an old branch is kind of stiff, but a young green branch is kind of flexible? Um, if, if they do this in the green, and I think what he's saying is, these guys are doing this to me. I'm the green wood, the young, the strong, the perfection. What's going to happen when I'm gone and they do this to the nation of Israel, which is dried up like branches ready to be thrown into the fire? The unbelieving, you know, the, the uh, hard, hard line it, Jewish leaders, they don't want anything to do with Jesus. He, um, he says, look, they're, gonna, they're really going to do it to the crusty old nation. If they do it to me, they're really going to give it to you. So don't weep for me. Weep for you and for your children because in 40 years, he doesn't say this, but this happened in 40 years, just a generation and a half or two generations later, the Romans came and they decimated Jerusalem, burned it down to the ground, destroyed everything again. So I'll make a comment here. Well, actually, I won't. I'll save that to you uh, for later. If you want to talk about is this a case of multiple fulfillment, I can do that another time. So that's the first words of Jesus, not on the cross, but right before he goes on. Then Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. So there Jesus is on the cross. Truly the men who put Jesus on the cross didn't know what they were doing. I mean, if they had known what they were doing, Paul says if the, if the princes of this world had known that they were crucifying the Lord of glory, they wouldn't have done it. Even for, I just think, even for like uh, superstition's sake, an unbeliever wouldn't touch somebody who claims to be a deity. You, you just wouldn't go there. But maybe some, you know... Uh, some would have touched Jesus. I mean, think of Pilate. His wife told him, don't have anything to do with that just man, for I've suffered many things today in a dream because of him. And yet he still didn't listen to his wife. Dummy. <laughs> oh, well. Um, yes, well... Educated, uh, Becky is saying, the ones who did this were the educated ones. Yes, education doesn't mean smart or intelligent. It just means educated, you know, filled up with information that they've been told. And sometimes people are filled up with information that comes from the outside, but they don't, they don't step back and critically evaluate it from, like, a worldview perspective and say, well, you know, that's all, that's all fine and good in their worldview, but if you step back a little bit, it looks a little foolish, a little short-sighted you know, a little incomplete. Like today, science, you know, it's, it's in a box like this. Anything natural, that's what science deals with. But that's not all that is. There's a whole realm outside of the natural called the supernatural or the miraculous, the extraordinary, the, that which has to do with God. I mean, if it, if it can't dwell within time, space, and mass, 
then they say, well, we don't deal with that. Well, God is not bound by time. He doesn't take up space and he has no mass. Same with Jesus, same with the angels, same with your spirit. You know, try to, try to weigh somebody before they die and after they die, there's no difference. But their spirit was certainly real because that dead body doesn't do a, look a lot like the one that was alive, right? Anyway, um, Father, forgive them. Had they known, it, was, it is most doubtful that almost anyone would have touched Jesus, including Pilate and the crowds who demanded him to be crucified. And that's what I think is going to lead to the deep mourning of the people of Israel when they look upon him whom they pierced, when they realize, oh, no, we killed the Son of God. I mean... That's terrible. That is terrible. Also, this scenario here where Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We focused on that they don't know what they're doing. But think of the first part. Jesus shows his amazing selfless character. He did not want them to receive special punishment or blame for this particular sin. I think he knew what we know, which is they had enough sin already. If they had all this added on to them, it'd be that much worse. And so he asked the Father to forgive them. I believe that prayer was answered. Father, forgive them in this. Not just forgive them blanket for everything ever, but for this. Get that off of their slate. I'm dying for sinners. I'll die for that sin too. They had enough sin to condemn them already. They didn't need more. So, in any case, forgiveness for this incident or any other sin can only be found in Jesus Christ, can't it? The forgiveness that he offered, he was about to, he was about to accomplish on the cross that he was hanging upon. Number three, in John 19, Jesus speaks two short sentences. Woman, behold your son. And he says to the disciple whom he loves, behold your mother. Jesus was speaking to Mary and to John. And I think what he was doing was he was telling John, I want you to adopt my mom as your own mom and make sure that she's cared for because my dad, Joseph, is gone. He died probably 20 years ago or 15 years ago. And I want you to care for her because the other problem is I've got several siblings, but they don't believe. You know what I'm saying? They don't believe yet. Now, I think, you know, they probably, once they became believers, many of them, I, I hope many of them, I know we know some of them, uh, you know, hopefully they kind of adopted their mom back again. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? John had a particular responsibility. And I believe John was a young man, and so he had strength, he had probably resources, and Jesus knew that he was outfitted for the job to be a selfless caregiver for his own mother. Because, see, Jesus was the oldest. He was the firstborn. He was responsible for his mother. You know, just being firstborn doesn't just get you off the hook and give you all the privileges. You get some responsibilities, too. So Jesus showing care for the people who crucified him, and showing care for his tender care for his mother, even as he hung dying on the cross. Took care of his last will and testament there, if you will. 
Luke 23, 43, probably after noon sometime, Jesus said to one of the two thieves, Assuredly, this day you will be with me in paradise. Now that happened after the, you know, after the two thieves had criticized Jesus, asked him to save them if you were the Son of God, and then after hanging on the cross for a while and having some time to think about it, one of the thieves came to his senses and said, You know, I'm, I'm hanging here because I've done something. I, I deserve it. Jesus didn't deserve anything. He knew. And so he asked, and Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's interesting. He didn't think of Jesus, first of all, as a savior. He thought of him as a king. And we ought to think of him that way too. He's our king. He's our savior as well, but he's our king. This is a supporting uh, passage for our certain expectation that when we die in Christ, we will be with him in paradise. That is, if the thief went there, we will go there if we believe in him. Okay? The thief didn't go to heaven as a thief. He went to heaven as a forgiven, repentant thief. Right? We don't go to heaven as who we used to be. We go to heaven as a repentant, believing version of who we used to be, a changed person. And that's what happens with us. We're, we have that expectation to be out, to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. All right, now we come to the phrase, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We talked about that already. He had a true feeling of abandonment. He knew it wouldn't last forever, but that doesn't make you feel a whole lot better in the moment, does it? When you're suffering, you're suffering. And he was. He had a real feeling for the moment, not just a phantom or pretend feeling of abandonment. And then a couple more. John 19:28 says, I thirst. This served to fulfill the pattern of righteous sufferer found in the Old Testament. Psalm 69, 21 refers to vinegar or sour wine, which was given as a drink to a sufferer who was calling upon God for help. It also served a physical need of moisture for speaking after being parched for more than six hours. And who knows when he had his last drink of water overnight, maybe at the last supper was his last drink and uh, he would be dry, dry, dry. But even in the end, Jesus was trusting in God to deliver him in the right way and at the right time. And I say that because he's referring, he's using Scripture, and in order that Scripture may be fulfilled, and he knows this, he says, I thirst, so that someone will give him that drink, just like the drink was given to the righteous sufferer in the Psalms. Luke 23, 46, then Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In this statement, Jesus quotes from Psalm 31, 5. Notice how Jesus is always quoting from the Old Testament, even as he's hanging on the cross. This also shows that no one took Jesus' life from him. Into your hands I commend my spirit. Now is the time I laid down my life and I will take it up again, John 10, 17 to 18. And this was the right time. What time? Three o'clock in the afternoon, the time of the evening sacrifice. Now I give my life, right now. And then he says, Luke 23, 30. Is it Luke 23, 30? Let me just double check that. No, it's not 23.30. I'm thinking of, I've got that mixed up. It's John 19.30. I know better than that. 
It is finished, the telestai. It is finished. I'll just make sure that I'm not confusing myself all to pieces here. It is John 19.30. And he said it is finished and he gave up his spirit. So the work of salvation then is paid in full and completely accomplished. Now you might say, well, is it really finished? Because he had to be buried and he had to rise again from the dead. Of course, those had to be completed, but they were as good as done, all perfectly now, fully assured. And uh, the way I was thinking about illustrating it was the gift had been purchased. All that remained was to put the wrapping paper and the bow on it. But it's done, right? It's finished. You've got the gift. Your Christmas shopping is done. You just have to put a little paper on it, put put a to and from on it, and there it is. Well, his gift is purchased, paid for, and uh, it's to you from him. Receive it, please. Imagine the suffering of the Lord on this cross. And then express your heartfelt gratitude to him for what he did for you, for your redemption. Let us do that together, my friends. Father, as we read, we can only partly imagine the terrible suffering that the Lord underwent in order to accomplish our redemption. And we know that, as we've often said, the physical suffering was only a part. We also had to deal with the spiritual suffering pictured by the blackness of darkness that came over the land for three hours. People must have been going around in in stunned amazement and silence at what was happening in the natural world as the wrath of God was funneled down upon the Lord Jesus hanging upon that cross. And Lord, when he died, he accomplished our salvation, and I want to thank you for that. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying in our place, giving yourself wholly so that we could have life, have it more abundantly, have it more freely, have it more joyfully, have it more blissfully and eternally. And Lord, uh, as we imagine the pain and the suffering, we give you gratitude for accomplishing our salvation. Thank you. Thank you for the words that you spoke, those eight parts or sentences or little paragraphs that teach us so much in just the little space of time we've looked at them. In Jesus' name, amen.